Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa Idea in the 21st century. Embrace Books. On this episode of the Iowa Idea Podcast, I'm joined by Abana Sankofa Imhotep. Abana is the director of Sankofa Literary and Empowerment Group, which promotes works by black authors and is the principal consultant for Sankofa Strategies Consulting. An active advocate, Abana serves on several boards of directors. She's a TEDx speaker, a published writer, a podcaster, and an undergrad at Drake University. Abana resides in central Iowa. We talk about Abana's journey growing up in Des Moines, her love of books, the power of the community of libraries, and how these things come together in her work in literary empowerment and providing greater awareness of black authors. I appreciated Abana sharing her perspectives and insights and the spirit of the term Sinkofa and the positive potential we're capable of as Iowans. Please check out the links in the show description. And I strongly encourage listeners to check out Abana's TED Talk, Iowa Nice Interrupted. She uses the analogy of a bike lane to highlight the experience of black Iowans. In our conversation, we also looked at RAGBRAI, the Register's annual great bike ride across Iowa, as a positive example of when Iowans at their best, celebrating community, sharing the road, hosting strangers, etc., it was an honor having Abana on the show. I hope you enjoy the episode. Abana, thank you so much for joining me on the Iowa Idea podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. If you don't mind, for our guests, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Well, Matt, first of all, I just want to say thank you for having me. This is real, really cool. Um, so there's not much to tell about me. Not really. I mean, I'm, I'm an Iowan. I am a lifelong Iowan. I am a Black person in Iowa. Um, I like to say that I think globally and I pay attention globally, but try to implement change locally because all things that, are, that matter are local. So that's kind of who I am. I'm a thinker. You know, I try to process the world by thinking it through and, and really asking myself some tough questions. And if I don't have an answer, then that's where that's where I start trying to figure it out. Thank you. And I, uh, a person that we have in common is, is Matthew Gilbert. And it's yeah. from conversations of, with Matthew that he uh, told me about you and also told me about your... Your, your TED talk that you gave earlier uh, about kind of Iowa nice interrupted, uh, which I thought was a absolutely beautiful and powerful uh, talk. Thank do you. you. Do you, do you mind telling me where the, the, I'm the inspiration, right. And I, and I know, cause I, I don't want to gloss over it, right. You, you all said like, you're, you're a, a black woman living in Iowa, right. And a black and And I think sometimes when the world thinks about Iowa, that's probably not the image that comes to their mind immediately. 
but we, you know, black people are an incredibly important part of the overall fabric. And you are able to talk about some of the challenges that are going, as you said, Iowa nice interrupted, but both the, the, I guess the, the impetus for it and also the spirit of delivery, how you got there, because again, it's such a wonderful talk, both from a content and delivery uh, perspective. I, I just loved it. Thank you. I um, have, like I said, I, I've been here, you know, I, I'm not a stranger to this state, to our culture. There are things that we have in common that are kind of, uh, you know, they're, they're in all of us, thoughts and patterns and, and beliefs. Um, regardless of our racial background. So that that's what connects us as Iowans. But um, there is a difference between being white in Iowa, you know, being 90% of the population in Iowa and being black in Iowa, which is 4%. Like we're literally called minority which is the implication that someone is less than something else or someone else. So we're labeled, even though we have these things that connect us as Iowans, there's a portion, many portions of our communities that are dealing with um, what seems to be insurmountable, insurmountable odds. But if we think about it through the lens of we're Iowans, what does that look like? To me, that looks like rag bride. You know, there's all kinds of people on that bike path going from the east end of the state or the west end of the state to the east end of the state. All kinds of people can relate to that, right? So I'm thinking, what happens in the bike lane? And I've been pondering that for some time when I literally was out driving with my daughter, kind of giving her some tips on the road. And as we're interacting with traffic and signs and you know, attitudes and mom, I know, I know, you know, we're interacting with all this. I'm realizing this is the relationship between black Iowans and white Iowans. You know, who's in the major lane with the privilege of a vehicle and then who's in the margin, who's marginalized and only can operate within a small window that might cut off at any given time and you don't know if the people navigating life next to you see you in their blind spot. That's to be black in Iowa. And so that's where I wanted to really communicate to Iowans that, hey, this is what we're dealing with. It's not something that we we don't have to, we, we don't have to be afraid to think about race. You know, a lot of these conversations are gonna happen for the first time. So we have to not be afraid to talk about race because we're here, you know, so let's talk about it. And so how do we talk about it? Iowa nice, the bike lane. I do. There are, there are so many powerful parts of your, your, your metaphor or, or analogy there. Uh, let me jump to the positive side where you said like uh, sometimes may, maybe when Iowans are at their best, <laughs> is there are so many elements of ragbri that are beautiful, right? These these communities coming together, celebration. Uh, but even when you talk about the, there are there are people that play support. There are there are host houses that invite strangers in, right? Yeah. Let them sleep in the yard or house, and it, you know it can be such a heartwarming picture. And then as you said, the 
the bike lane itself, I was just thinking, you know, I live in Iowa City and and as soon as you get out of Iowa City, some of the rural roads, which are are great for long distance cycling, but one of the areas you have the the physical accidents are when you come to a bridge, the bike lane disappears, right? And, and it was designed solely for a vehicle to get through. And and so I'm I'm the layers of, of which your talk was are, are just hitting me even more where we do see like some of the infrastructure looks like it's there and then might just disappear on somebody while the majority right in that design uh d- doesn't have that fear like is my lane suddenly going to go away right, right. and you know that there's a road ahead of you whether it's yep. gravel it's paved or whether it's a freeway or an exit ramp you know that there is road ahead of you but by the time you're on the exit ramp, the person in the bike lane has run out of lane. Right. And so if we take that and apply it to life, then you've got to think about what is the road that runs out for people in the margins? It's healthcare, it's housing, the lane runs out at education, the, ra- the, the lane runs out at the economy. You know, and other people are still on that road. They don't know what the road is like, but they know it's there. So it's like, what do we do with what we know at that point? Yeah, thank you. I want to talk to you a little bit about, if you don't mind, because uh, I, I don't want to butcher the, the setup and the meaning, but also some of the work that you do in literary empowerment. Yeah. Uh, do, do you mind talking about that a little bit? So I love books, okay? This is this is no secret. <laughs> because I believe that, you know, books are important. Listening or reading other people's perspectives, you know, finding ideas that are different than yours and understanding another person's point of view, that's important. So I love books. And so um, I decided that books by black authors, especially in a place as homogenous as Iowa, um, they're not, it's not that they're few and far between, but it's just not top of mind unless someone has an affinity for books by black authors and the Harlem Renaissance and everything that predates that. So there was no community around black books that I could see. And so I decided to, to take a book that I'd gotten as a gift and start a book club, pretty much what is what happened. And so the book club grew and we started to become uh, philanthropic, able to provide books for children into um, uh, urban um, elementary schools in Des Moines. Um, And then from there, we were able to give out scholarships to book club members who had financial hardship. So um, it's about building community around books by black authors um, sharing our experiences and how we interacted with what we read and then giving back to our communities in whatever way that that looks like for whatever the time calls for. Thank you. And, uh, and on your, your website, you, you, uh, you have a little bit of a description too, where, where the name comes from and, and the meaning, uh, do, do you mind sharing with the listeners a little bit about the, the, the meaning of the, the name? So Sankofa Literary Group. Um, Sankofa is is a a West African word out of Ghana um, used in the Yoruba tradition of the Ashanti tribe. And the word Sankofa means to return and retrieve, to return to your culture, to take the lessons from the past, bring them forward 
for benevolent use for the community. And so that's the spirit with which we approach books by black authors. You know, what can we glean from this so that we can use to better our tomorrow? So that's that's how we that's how we think about what we read, among other things. I mean, everybody yeah. has different thoughts. So we have great rich conversations. No, and I love I love the name, and that's just one of the the things that I tend to nerd out on as I I love kind of Genesis stories and like the naming conventions and what like principles were at play when when something was getting established. But it to me, it's a really beautiful uh, context in which to set set forth this the the quest of the literary empowerment. And uh, one of the things that's come up for me a few times talking to guests on the podcast. Sometimes we've talked about leadership, we've talked about culture. And in many ways, it seems like some of the the ideas for people being their best selves, we've we've actually known for thousands of years. It's it's like each generation tends to forget it that for whatever reason, uh, we 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 don't keep building on that. And that so just personally, that's one of the things that I found really uh, interesting and, and inspiring about the like taking taking what has been learned and 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 the gifts or you know kind of in a in a maybe in a research way, sometimes when we think about standing on the shoulders of giants, right? If I've seen farther, it's because I stood on the shoulders of giants. How yeah. can we keep bringing some of these good things forward without forcing people to have to relearn them? Uh, yeah. right? it's, I think it's about, it's our choices, it's our decisions, it's what we prioritize. Um, I listen to a lot of black scholars and um, black philosophers for instance, um, Dr. Gregory Carr, he is um, an African, an Africana studies professor somewhere at some university. I can't recall it off the top, but he's amazing. And he reminded um, his listeners and his students, his audiences to think about movement and memory. And that is, you know, as a community of people with this connection that makes us Iowans, regardless of what our backgrounds are, you know, what are the things that um, create a sense of belonging? And those things impact our collective movement. And then once we do that and recognize that, then Dr. Carr says it is imprinted in our collective memory. There are things that we are just going to remember forever because we're American, right? We're gonna remember the civil rights movement. You know, we're going to remember the day George Floyd was murdered. You know, we're going to remember Trayvon Martin. There, there are things in our collective memory that are there and we're unified in that 9-11. But there are also many other moments as community that we miss and that we forget, such as, you know, in 1975, Governor Robert Ray opened up Iowa to resettle Vietnam uh, refugees. That is a moment that we can all be proud of, but we choose to not use that and pass that down in our collective memory so that we can share in that on a regular basis. And maybe we'd be more open to, to immigrants and open our doors to Haitians if we remembered collectively what we are capable of as Iowans. So that's why Sankofa is important. We wanna go back, we wanna look back and say, okay, if as a community we remember how we were, perhaps that can inform you know, our progress in healthcare in education, you know, in housing and and uh, in employment for all Iowans. That, that's truly how I feel. I sound like I'm corny, but 
No, <laughs> I have lofty goals too, but you know, I'm so serious. But and I'll, I'll I'll take that as a good Iowa pun. Being corny is all right in Iowa, right? <laughs> no pun intended, right? <laughs> Uh, so you talked about your love of books and uh, so some, I love talking to folks about their craft and part of it is their their journey and interests but mm-hmm. let's go back a little bit where do you do you remember early in your journey where your interest in in books started oh my gosh I think um you know I haven't and speaking of collective memory this yeah. is a memory that I haven't recalled for some time but now that you ask I remember growing up in um, North Side, the near North Side, Des Moines. And by that, I mean, you know, the neighborhood where it was predominantly black. And um, I remember going to the local library as a child. This was like before I was in kindergarten. And it was called at the time Mid-City Library. And it was on the corner of 13th and University, a small little quaint building with two sides separated by a door. One side had, you know, books around the perimeter and then play area in the middle. And the other side was the library. And so this gym was in the middle of our community and um, growing up in the eighties in Des Moines, you know, there were hard times. There were families like mine who were impacted by strikes and union stuff and, you know, veterans issues and being black and all of these things. And so it took, there was a toll being taken on the community, similar to what we see now, just different contexts. So the library was like respite, respite for children. And so to go up there and see my cousins and some neighborhood kids, and we would, you know, play games based on the books that the librarians read to us. I mean, ah, I fell in love with books at that point, right? So before I could read, I wanted to be in a learning literary environment. So it sounds like there was just such a strong emotional imprint about all these good feelings and and yes. and, and books were there. And so do you, you you like at some level it's still feeling good by grabbing a book or jumping into a new idea. Yeah, it's like okay, truly after a long day and it's not that I have a lot of free time. Okay. Yeah. There's stuff going on. We gotta, we gotta handle our business. But if I if I have a moment where I can sit down and watch the news or play on my phone, sometimes I won't do that. I'll pick up a book and read for a half hour. That's not gonna yeah. that's not gonna hurt me. What am I what else could I do more productive with my time than reading for 30 minutes? So you know, whenever I pick up a book and I'm old school because I like to to turn the pages, I know there's Kindles and stuff. Yeah. And those are great. Yay. But I prefer to feel the pages and smell the book when the pages turn. I'm I'm with you. I uh, and a lot of my career has been in digital design, yet I still love going to a physical book. I like owning the book so that I can write my own notes in it. I can reference things. uh, And I feel like for whatever reason, my recall is completely different between like a digital version or a physical version of the book. Um, And, and I think some of that might be, you you described smell page turning, or I've loved like when I was a kid looking at old books and seeing the different how how it might be more faded around the edges where sunlight was hitting part of the book but not all yeah. of it <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely if i have a book like this one is pretty new i've got the book here 
called Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates. Yeah. And this book is brand new, so I haven't broken it in. But if I have a book that's in pristine condition, that means I'm not doing my job. So I need the pages to be, you know, a little stretched out. I don't mind if the binding is bent. Come on. You know, <laughs> a perfect book is a book not read. <laughs> uh, and so so that's your, some of your interests. But do you mind talking about your journey a little bit from like going from from sharing, sharing, you know, these these important elements like you are with with your book club to your talk like there's a there's there's a lot in between pre-kindergarten and and what you're doing today but do you mind talking a little bit just generally about kind of uh the journey and where more of your interests continue to show themselves absolutely so um i was um like i said i'm an i'm an iowan and having been in um public schools um, that was really, you know, it was what it was. I appreciate the public school system. Um, going through Des Moines public schools and then kind of uh, making some bad choices as some children do and having to stay an extra year in high school, okay? That ruined that ruined a lot of things for me. Um, but I, I realized that although I didn't like to be in the classroom for whatever reason, I loved to learn. And I've never um, really found um, an environment more powerful than a library um, until after I graduated public school. You know, it was a great start. Um, I had my hiccups. I take full responsibility for detention and school suspension, mouthing off, you know, those types of things. But it's one thing to, as a friend of mine says, it's one thing for an educator to have a good job. It's another thing for an educator to educate our children, you know? So, so anyway, I went off on a tangent there. No, that's all right. Um, but so, you know, that those, those kinds of encounters that I've had have kind of informed where I've tried to apply my gifts. So for a while, I used my um, theatrical abilities. You know, I'm, I'm an actress on in local theater here in Des Moines. Um, so I utilized that and my creative um, stuff, my singing and my music stuff to speak truth to power. You know, I, I um, tried to take up space as a black artist in spaces that were predominantly white, you know, to see if that would make a difference for the community. So once I'd done some things like that, you know, um, and started to utilize black books as a way to make connections with with my neighbors, um, then that kind of developed into some other advocacy and activism um, and political aspiration. In 2018, um, I was a lieutenant governor um, selection for Marco Battaglia with the Libertarian Party. So that was a way for me to try to um, give back to Iowans and try to make things better for people who have been marginalized. Um, and so that's kind of the theme of what I, of, of what I stand for and what I do is, you know, how can we make this place better for everyone, you know, in, 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 in general, but in particular for black people. Right. Thank you. Um, when you're talking about theater a little bit to walk, walk me through to your, your interests in, in theater and acting and singing. I tell you theater is amazing. So 
I um, was introduced to theater kind of through a Facebook post. <laughs> I mean, I attended shows and, and enjoyed the, the, the art um, as a spectator, but I got some communication via Facebook from a beloved person in the theater community in Iowa and in the Midwest, really, all over, Ken Matt Martin. And so because of him, um, he is a, a mastermind of all things theater. Um, I was able to get an audition for Sister Act. And so that was my first show. Um, I was in the ensemble in Sister Act. And, you know, my family realized that I was none number seven. I was <laughs> none number seven. My sister said, I hope lightning doesn't strike. <laughs> so anyway, I was scared every night, all 22 shows, that lightning would strike because I was a nun. <laughs> but no, um, it was great. So after that, and that, okay, so this is how race plays a part in everything. I mean, it, it truly does. So the Des Moines Playhouse um, is our local theater. It's a wonderful organization. And it's a predominantly, predominantly white theater company. So um, I did that. And then before that show was over, I was invited to audition for another part for the part of Can't Take It With You. The part was Reba, the maid. So this was set during Reconstruction. Right. So although, you know, although I thought I did a nice job in uh, the first play as an ensemble member, you know, I was really pleased to get a speaking role. It just happened to be a maid. So I did that and I did a great job. I had fun on that um, on that show with all of my castmates. We are like family to this day. And for that part, for playing a maid, I won an award. I was the best um, um, Act, uh, 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 I'm sorry, best actress on a main stage play for You Can't Take It With You. So I have my award sitting right Awesome. Now. Congratulations. Yeah. So it's, it's that kind of thing is that I know I did a good job. You know, I got an award for my performance as a maid. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So, yeah. So anyway, <laughs> I'm saying all this in the realest possible way because there is a duality to living in Iowa as a black woman. Could I move? Yes, but this is America. It's not an Iowan problem. It's an American yeah. problem. So theater. And so yeah. I've done many more shows and um, Pyramid Theater is the only black owned theater company in the state of Iowa. And I was able to do two shows with Pyramid they do fantastic work in Des Moines and they collaborate all over the country with other organizations. Yeah. Do you, do you mind talking a little bit more to, cause you, you did say at the, like, I mean, it's, it races everywhere. Right. And yeah. so even, even in theater and like, so what I'm hearing is one is, well, I'll just kind of throw my mental model out of the table and, and please react and let me know like where, where it's wrong. But also like, so if, when, when there's, when there is maybe kind of white or privileged ownership, there's already selection on who they think should be playing parts and already a, a replicating a certain, certain view of a particular art. And that's what I, maybe I was hearing a little bit too, is then 
like even you you did a great job but you were selected to be a maid right and was is 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 race playing a role in that or just if you don't mind walking me through some of the challenges, sure. I, it's a little no, more obvious for me when there's just one, like when you said, when there's only one black owned theater or mm-hmm. when like when works aren't celebrated, right. Kind of similar to books. We know that like black filmmakers, right. Have struggled and, and, and from theater productions and playwrights, right. That it's, it's a ho- very homogeneous view of, of the fine yeah. arts. So I just literally had this conversation last week. Um, in Iowa City, in your city, you know, they commemorated the 60th anniversary of the Freedom Rides um, with a movie screening about Joan Trumpower Mulholland, directed by her Emmy-winning son, Loki. Really talented young man who told his mother's story. In so doing, he was giving a retelling of the civil rights movement, which largely we've heard through the lens of Black people or through the lens of records that were kept and taken and kept by the majority. So never have we heard publicly like this in Iowa, to my understanding, um, the tell the retelling of the civil rights movement through the lens of a Southern white woman. So I said all that to say, it's about who's telling the story and why. And there's been a lot of conversations on the diversity of storytelling And I asked Loki, you know, what was it like to film a documentary that you know is true because it's your mother's life story, but it's coming from you when the country is used to hearing it come from Black people. And so he unpacked that, you know, and helped me to understand and the audience to understand that, you know, there is room for every story. It's just a matter that we tell it right, tell it truth, you know, tell tell the history accurately. And so in terms of storytelling in in our theaters, um, no, I would not say that, you know, there were were any stereotypes um, um, knowingly at play. That's what I'll say. Yeah. I'll say it's proven to be an opportunity for, for, additional learning and I think our theaters in Des Moines are doing a great job at taking those steps forward as is as are a lot of other organizations doing the same thing Um, particularly um, what comes to mind to kind of give you an idea of the complexity of all of that is I was also offered to audition for a role that was um, a retelling of a story and the role I was asked to play was to be one of five white friends, white female friends in the 50s in Louisiana. I was going to assume the role that had been previously played by a white actress. And so that's a flip side to where how well can I um, assume truly a persona that's completely foreign to me? You know, can I act that? Or how much of my own spin do I put on the character? So listen, right. I, tell you, I went through all that and I was like, I don't think I can do this. <laughs> so, you know, it's a responsibility of everyone involved in the art, in theater, to make sure that we're, we're being fair, we're being thoughtful, we take risks, we put on good shows, and we, we can answer why at the end of it. 
I love it. I, I don't think we, we discussed this, but when I lived in Minneapolis for a while, I uh, helped run an independent theater company uh, in, in Minneapolis. So I, yeah, I, I love the power and potential of, of the theater experience and, and, and what it can do from, from small, you know, black box sets, like not, nothing else on this, just people to like extravagant productions. But, uh, I'm yeah. curious too, because, uh, so. Can I just add one thing? Yeah. This is so important. You said the power of what theater can do. And I'll tell you anecdotally, what theater did for me was I had not been in a play since like the, the church plays at the holiday time when I was 10. <laughs> okay, right. so here I was in my late thirties on a stage, like a real stage with people I didn't know, but people who loved the music as much as I did. So I was like, this is amazing in Iowa. You know, it blew my mind. And then the cast parties and the backstage time and the bonding and the hugging and tears. Those are what make up family. Okay. I know I'm sounding so, but this is the truth. This is what makes a family. And I remember walking out of like my second rehearsal for Sister Act, which was my first show ever. I was thinking, oh my God, this feels like home. These people actually love me. <laughs> you know, it didn't matter that I was black. It didn't matter if I was a little overweight or my hair wasn't done. We were like family in that theater. So I think that is a testament of the power of what theater can do, of what the arts can do. You know, um, if you want to set an atmosphere for learning or if you want to set an atmosphere for a certain, you know, type of political understanding, what do you do? You turn on the right music. And so when um, <laughs> when people are able to bond and connect through the arts, I think that's that's valuable. You know, support the arts in our schools. That's valuable. You know. Yeah, I know some some creative friends of mine pointed out too in in the time of pandemic, when we are forced to force being a strong word, uh, but when we're encouraged to like shelter at home for a while or not. But what did we see? A lot of people returning to the arts, returning to creativity, right? On on what it can offer, and it's it can be so enriching, and and yet it it seems to be a lot of time in, in my it it's not seen as valuable, important to like as we're as we're teaching the next generation, right? Yeah. Uh, the, well, the, I mean, the, it depends on how you look at it too. I mean, I did say support the arts in school, but just like anything, um, the first teachers of any child i believe are the adults in that child's life so we have a responsibility as parents as guardians as community members as community leaders to make sure that we're able to provide some learning opportunities you know for the kids whether we're providing community arts programs or music mentorship or free tickets to to concerts and shows and things like that you know that is part of our social responsibility as Iowans to take care of one another if we can. I mean, I, I just believe in community at every single level. Thank you. And so uh, I'm curious too, from your, you sound like the, as you described to your theater experience, right? As a very kind of enriching, warm, you know, I, I love the idea that you said, like uh, your hair didn't have to be done and you, you felt accepted, right? Is, uh, when communities in general, but maybe specifically just some of the challenges we were talking about earlier 
right, with Iowa Nice interrupted too. But when as a community, maybe specifically, when are we at our best or what might we, we do to be our best so that we could I, so just where I'm coming from too is I feel like communities are better, stronger, more innovative when people can be their authentic self right? and, and coming in and be their authentic self. But that's just that's just my my opinion. So I'm curious for you too. Is what what can we do as a state, as 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 human beings living together uh, in between cornfields and in between urban areas, stuck in the cornfields? What can we do to be our best selves and and help each other? You know, that's a really interesting question, and I'm going to answer it the best I can. There are so many amazing things about living in the Midwest, about being in Iowa. You know, my, my family came from northern Mississippi. And at the, at the tail end of the transition out of the civil rights movement, so my family got here, um, you know, in the early 70s. And I was raised in the middle of a cornfield or a city stuck in a cornfield, um, surrounded by people with Southern charm and a love for their God, you know? So this was like the stuff out of black storybooks, (laughs) truly. And so I think if we can all lean into who we are as people while honoring our culture, you know, and everything um, that it means to be a good neighbor and to truly see people for their uniqueness and appreciate them anyway. You know, when we can do that, that's taking a step in the right direction. But even if we all in a perfect state did that, it wouldn't be enough because we have systems and structures in place that have a say in outcomes for people. So not only do we have to be a good neighbor and and be the best version of ourselves, we have to question our public institutions. We have to test them and make sure that they're equitable. You know, if there is a, a healthcare um, baseline that's that's wrong or that's dangerous, you know, black people are dying from everything, you know, the worst. So that seems like it's pretty urgent to me. So then what can we do as good neighbors, as the best versions of ourselves to collectively look at that you know what can we do with the about the food deserts in urban areas what can we do to address the lack of tree canopy in the cities you know we have to look at all of these things because they matter they matter and they count toward equity you know so yes be a good neighbor yes be your best individual self and then let's push to make the things that um that are institutionalized, let's push to make sure that they represent our values, our collective values. Right. Thank you. Yeah, there's a couple things that I, I want to just uh, jump in on, there, uh, just a few different threads, all, all that I love. Uh, one is uh, a friend of the podcast, uh, David Dylan Thomas. Uh, so he's a designer, but he, uh, he writes about cognitive bias in design and how systems kind of replicate themselves and it gets worse when we we're looking at like machine learning and artificial intelligence. Basically, if we're pointing a machine at 
a bias system, it will repeat the bias, even though we we like to say that, oh, now it's not people, it's, it's the system. But he does a great job talking about that. But he posted something today or retweeted that I saw it was about the difference in in Portland in tree canopy. And I had never thought and 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 hearing you say that I had never thought about that before, but they were even showing uh, I think he said even even the trees in Oregon are racist was I think the 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 frame that he used but look looking at that on you know population density looking at tree canopy it was I it opened my eyes so hearing you say that it was just today that I was just exposed to that and it does seem to fall right in line with uh, like you said with food deserts mm-hmm. and, and on know, that think about it I I was um, listening to a broadcast the other day. And they said that in one city, oh gosh, I wish I could remember what city yeah. this is, but I can't. So, but anyway, it's on PBS. They were talking about that in this one city, uh, the the trees were basically non-existent in areas, geographical areas that were um, heavily populated with black black and brown residents. So the city was making. Um, strides to plant trees and, and recruited a lot of other organizations to join in the effort. You know, it's community building, it's team building, it's addressing climate change as well. Um, and then they were asking each resident on these blocks to plant one tree. So this is an area that is impoverished. And so if, you, if you've got to choose between planting a tree and buying groceries for your family, then it comes down to buying groceries. So you have a lot of people that recognize, you know, that the lack of tree canopy is a sign of climate change and it's going to infect, affect their utility bills if they don't have mm-hmm. a lot of tree cover. They'll they use more um, energy, um, but they can't afford to be a part of the the solution in that way, you know. So the, I mean, the problems the problems we have. And then if you look at Cedar Rapids, you know, when the derecho hit last August of August of 2020, mm-hmm. Cedar Rapids was completely um, unable to move left or right for like how many days, weeks? Yeah. Know, they were without power. They were completely off the grid. There were, you know, people who were left displaced. And so, you know, we have to really take a look at the result of that being 65% of the city's tree canopy was completely wiped out. So Cedar Rapids is the second largest city, I think, in Iowa. And is it, it might, it was in 2020. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I I think so. And so 65% of their trees are gone. Right. So what does this do? What's the ripple effect? And how do we take our good neighborly um, attitudes and our, you know, best version of ourselves to confront these things as a community of people. That's the, that's the question. That's the question. Thank you. One of the, one of the other things I, I just wanted to kind of just build on, on what you said too, is talking about health outcomes as well. And you know, last was it last last year or the year before I sat in in um, a session and it was the university the College of Medicine at the University of Iowa and it was it was it was uh, dissecting data on the social determinants of health and for me that was so eye opening because you know just generally speaking thinking that somebody's health is really related to is it is it genetics or 
you know, just their general lifestyle, right? Do they eat healthy or do they, do they exercise? But then what you, you start to find is actually the biggest thing that's going to impact your health are these other social determinants. And some of that you're, you're talking about, like, uh, does, is a person in a food desert? Do they have regular access to, to healthcare? And besides all of the challenges our, our, our health system has nationally, but when you start to dig in on the social determinants of health, it was really both eye-opening and disturbing at also where basically kind of the systems that you talked about that kind of just, uh, you know, kind of reinforce, and, and it, it's not necessarily obvious, but they, 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 they kind of reinforce these systems of, of race and control. And, and we see it in, in something as, as somebody health and, and longevity. You know, I was in um, a meeting um, where we were learning, I think it was a training. And um, one of the interesting ideas that came out of that meeting that I'll never forget is the facilitator said that one of the determinants for outcomes in you know, healthcare, education, jobs, where you're able to live would be access to the internet. It would be broadband. So if you look at something that is as necessary as broadband, you know, we've had the pandemic put a lot of people working remotely. Okay, so we have this demand for broadband and in a state like ours, we have rural areas um, that have the need for broadband, children in school and, and people just needing access because it's a necessity now. Yep. So when you have such a demand for something like that, then what you have is is you're going to have people's inability to afford it be a factor in a lot of the, the outcomes that they're facing, you know, as people. So if you don't have access to the internet, you cannot work from home. Your child can't be educated at home if, if a pandemic happens. You know, you may not have access to certain um, amenities that we consider important, you know, our our TV stuff and our phone stuff, you know, the internet, we need access to that. So that is also a determinant of, of what our outcomes are. Thank you. Uh, in an earlier conversation, you and I, this, what's making me think about this too, is we're just talking about some elements to geography and, and neighborhoods. But I know we were talking because you're, you're taking classes at Drake and almost the symbolism of where Drake is, is located and the relationship between almost uh, at, at a microcosm of town and gown relationship. But do you yeah. mind jumping in on that? I mean, you know, it's it's the matter of I grew up uh, in Des Moines, like I said, in the urban community where it was predominantly black folks that lived in, in my neighborhood and um, not far outside of what we would consider the hood, you know, the neighborhood, um, was Drake University. Now, being in the public school system, I rode the buses, you know, especially when after uh, the second grade, my elementary school, which was my neighborhood elementary school, um, was impacted by desegregation. So we got letters sent home to our parents saying that for third grade, we're going to send your child to XX magnet school in a different neighborhood. So we were bust. You know, I'm only 44 years old. This wasn't that long ago. Right, right. So we were bust from our neighborhood 
into a neighborhood on the other side of Drake University that was predominantly white, and we were sent to that school. So we were a part of desegregating Des Moines late in, in, into the early 80s. And so what that did was put Drake University in our window as we passed by going to our new school. And so it's not something that, that many of us, my friends and I, and I can speak for the, to the, or speak on their behalf on this because we talked about it, but it's not that we didn't know that Drake was a university in our neighborhood. It's just that some of us didn't think we had access. We weren't told, you know, we weren't educated to believe some of us. Yeah. So Drake University was an accessory in my neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> A very beautiful accessory. And I saw it change over the years. My uncle used to live in a house on 25th Street. Um, and I remember they moved. Um, they had to move from that house. That uh, entire block had to move because Drake University was buying the property and expanding. And so right, right there is now um, part of the sports complex. So we've seen the evolution and the growth of, of the university. And then, you know, life happens. You have kids, you get a job, you get married, not in that order. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or maybe in that order. <laughs> and, um, and then, you know, you make choices, you live your life, you pay your bills, and you keep it moving. And then one day, someone says, Hey, do you want to go to Drake University? And I'm like, Really? <laughs> so, you know, I was like, What the heck? All they can do is say, no, you're not in. And then I keep living my life. So I filled out the paperwork and got accepted. I messed around and got accepted to Drake. So um, I'm there. I love it. I love being on campus. I'm actually on campus and um, I, I love learning. So this is like the pinnacle for me this year, you know, having a good time with Drake. Oh, that's, that's great. I love it. Uh, so it went from being an accessory to now a part of a, a regular part of your life now going yeah, to Drake. It went, it went from being an accessory uh, in my neighborhood to an accessory around my neck. Because <laughs> I mean that so much, you know, I treat um, Drake um, like the opportunity that it is for someone like me. But I also take the attitude of W.E.B. Du Bois when he graduated from Harvard. He said, surely the pleasure was Harvard's. <laughs> so, you know, I know that as much as I'm enjoying being at Drake, Drake is, is thoroughly enjoying my presence on campus. Uh, that's great. Uh, just as a side note, too, when you were talking about... Um, the desegregation and being on the bus, that's another... So I... Um, I have a, a lot of educators in, in my family, and uh, that was one of the things that seemed like it was not thought through very well was the amount of time that kids would be spending on the bus, right? So when you're you're talking about like, so I don't know, I was just kind of curious, was yours a long bus ride? But sometimes I've seen where kids are, they're spending basically an hour and a half more, right? When you, you think a day, right? Because yeah. so, some of it was like 45 minutes there, 45 minutes back where they they can't do other things, right? And so, well, you know, my experience was um, basically, so the understanding is this, 
<laughs> this is what we know. In Des Moines, you can get anywhere you need to go in 15 minutes. Okay. So if you take that in the terms of a bus full of children and you have multiple stops, we were able to get from my neighborhood to my new school um, in probably 45 minutes on a snowy day. Okay. So it wasn't that bad. Um, and at that time, at that age, of course, the bus was fun. The bus was cool. You know, get a good seat. But um, over time and living in Iowa, um, the bus doesn't become fun if you don't own the bus company. You right. know, so now it wasn't a long drive. We weren't on there, but I do know that that's the case for a lot of, yeah. you know, rural areas in our state. There, the kids are on the bus for a long time. Thanks. Uh, so, uh, want to get it to, uh, so as a creative, I'm curious too, is if you ever feel stuck and if so, what are your personal techniques for, for getting unstuck? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's normal, uh, to periodically have moments where you just can't quite <laughs> get it done. Right. Right. You, know, you, you can't, complete the email or you're, you're, you're in the middle of a paragraph or in the middle of a thought and the clarity just won't come. Um, sometimes um, that happens to me, you know, at the worst possible moments. But one thing that one of my amazing professors um, at Drake University really talks about a lot is, you know, personal responsibility. And where in that, in those situations, do we evaluate our participation in getting stuck, you know? So have I not prioritized my time well? You know, have I not, have I allowed myself to become overwhelmed? Um, am I dealing with other stuff that's impeding me from being able to complete this project in this email, you know, write out this thought, whatever it may be. So yes, we get stuck but we do what's right and we evaluate our own um, participation and we address it and we keep it moving and we get it done. Right on. I know I had a friend one time, uh, once in a while, when I complain about work to him, I remember him saying, Matt, you know, the common denominator in all these stories is you. <laughs> we are the star player. Okay. And Cat Williams <laughs> says all the time, the comedian, he says, Take care of your star player. Now, people <laughs> laughed at that joke. They laughed just like you're doing. But guess what? If you don't take care of your star player, you're going to get stuck. I love it. Thank you. Uh, it's kind of switch in, and, and this probably overlaps a little bit, but one of the things I like to, to kind of close with, uh, with guests is a notion of advice. And sometimes that might be something that we receive from a mentor uh, like from, from my experience, sometimes it's, and, and maybe we're too young and cocky to really under, it sounded like gibberish maybe from an elder. Uh, and then you realize as you get older, it was a pretty, pretty elegant package that they had given you that still pays dividends. Uh, or uh, sometimes advice I, I, I'm stealing from Austin Kleon's book, Steal Like an Artist, where he says, when we're giving advice, we're just talking to our younger self. So I don't know, like either or both, uh, either good advice you've received or advice maybe you wish you would have received earlier in your journey? Well, man, listen, that's, that's so, that's such an awesome question. First of all, I hate giving advice. <laughs> I do because what do we do as people? We think we can see everybody's situation and know what the right move to make is. But like I said earlier, 
if we don't check our star player, you know, so I don't really give advice. I'm a better listening ear, you know, I'll hold your hand <laughs> right through that project. But um, I'm not the one to give advice. I can make a referral. I can give you a book to read. So I would say um, I won't give any uh, or, or give any advice, but I'll share what I do, you know, what I would do. Yeah. I would, um, embrace books. You know, I was recently asked about where do I go to experience diversity? And I'm thinking the first, the very first place I thought of was the freaking public library. Now, who's Iowan? Who is more Iowan than me? Like, come on. So pick up a book. It'll take you to another place. You might learn something. You may experience an opinion or thought, a belief or attitude that is the complete opposite of yours. And you might walk away with some appreciation. So I would say to everyone listening, don't stop reading. And if you stop, please start. That's a listening or reading. Re reading, yeah. Okay. Don't stop reading. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wish I could remember. Like you said, there was like a terrifying statistic of like when, how many, like what percentage of the population basically by the time they're done with high school don't read another book. I know we get lots of information and misinformation through like social media, but to your, like just actually sitting down, reading a book, being I exposed mean, to new time. ideas. I'm not going to play like, you know, I don't think life happens. Who really has time to pick up a book <laughs> and sit down and read it? Only right. the people who make that time. Only the people who make that time and set it as an intention. So make the time. You know, you either make the time or you waste it. Abana, thank you so much for for joining me on the podcast today. It was it was such an honor to have have the opportunity to to talk with you and, and listen to your story. So thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Matt. Peace and love.